Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Pablo Picato about his new book, A History of Infamy, Crime, Truth, and Justice in Mexico. Pablo Picato, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Pablo, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your career, your interests. I'm a professor of history at Columbia University. Um... I did my PhD in the University of Texas at Austin and my uh, BA in the, uh, UNAM, the National University of Mexico. Um, I've been working on themes of crime and politics in Mexico since since then. Um, and uh, the book we're going to talk about today is the third one that I published in English. Thank you. And... Let's talk about this book. How did you come to write a, a history of infamy? You already told us that it's part of an ongoing interest, but yeah. why this topic in particular? Yeah, well, it evolved because the first book I wrote after my dissertation was it's called City of Suspects. It was a social history of crime in Mexico in the early 20th century. Um, uh, what I tried to understand how crime uh, happened as a relation between people, right? As conflict from judicial sources. So the idea for this book, for a history of infamy, initially was to continue that project into the present. Uh, the first book was until 1930, and I thought, well, maybe I can continue with that history of crime in Mexico City uh, to to the contemporary times, right? Where crime is such an important um, matter. And uh, I started working on that, but I soon realized that, first of all, that uh, coming to the present was going to be very difficult in the sense that there is a lot going on. You know, the drug traffic and organized crime is, uh, is a major uh, factor in Mexican life today. But mainly because there is a lot uh, that has been written about it. And in my view, not uh, digested historically, mm. right? So what I thought uh, would be more useful would be to, as a as a historian, right, was to identify a moment where some of the aspects of crime that we see today came to be. You know, when did we start in Mexico to think about uh, criminals as these famous people who are fascinating? No? Um, when did the country begin to be identified as a place of impunity and violence. So eventually the book, the project evolved into a, a book about the mid-decades uh, tw- uh, mid of the 20th century. Um, and also change, it was no longer a social history, but it turned into more of a history of crime in the public sphere. In other words, the ways in which people talked about crime. Uh, the way in which crime was in the press, in the conversations, in 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 literature, in in the streets, but as a, as an object of conversation rather than as a social practice, and that's why the book uh, uh, includes journalism, literature, um, and other aspects of culture. And the constant we find in, in your book, like from the beginning till the end, is this. A broken nexus, you call about mm-hmm. the broken nexus of crime, truth, and justice, mm-hmm. and these three concepts as premises of modern societies. Mm-hmm. And what is really interesting is it, during that those years, during the 20th century, Mexicans redefine reality by the absence of that connection, mm-hmm. a, a generating an, a tolerance for extrajudicial punishment and impunity. Mm-hmm. So how those three concepts work together or do not work together no. in the history of... Well, in theory, they should work together in the sense that once a crime happens, that is once uh, somebody 
transgresses, you know, the law and the norms, um, an investigation will follow to find out what happened and who's responsible. The idea would be to find the truth about that crime. And then from that investigation sh should uh, follow uh, justice, either punishment, restitution, some sort of uh, uh, solution to the initial conflict created by crime. So the connection between those three moments or three events is, um, as I said, in theory, essential to, to the very order of a, of a, um, a society, right? Especially in a, in, a, in a modern society, we expect crimes to be investigated and punished. Uh, the state is responsible for that, and society demands it. And and the premise um, is always that one can know the truth about a crime. That the crime will always can always be explained, and will always have a person responsible for it. That then can be punished. So what happened in Mexico, not only in Mexico, but I uh, focus uh, uh, particularly in, in Mexico, is that that connection between the three things seemed to be disrupted, seemed to not work as expected, or in comparison with other countries. Um, this means, in other words, that when crimes occur, in many cases, the truth is never found, is never uh, investigated. Um, there's, uh, uh, in a way, an acceptance, particularly during these years, that there will be many crimes that will not be solved, that we will never know what happened to them. And this is something that obviously uh, remains a fact in Mexico, especially now, I would say, when there are so many homicides that are not even investigated in Mexico. No? So many people who have been killed in the last you know, 20 years who uh, are going to remain nameless and, and, and their murderers will remain unpunished. No? So that's something that I think became very clear to people, to public opinion in Mexico in the mid-20th century. This idea of the lack of investigation and also the idea of impunity. This, uh, uh, the, the thought that a crime would result in a sentence and in punishment uh, was something that was no longer a certainty, no longer something that people expected, in fact. And uh, that's another feature that, in my view, remains today. Many people who commit crimes are not punished in Mexico, but also many people who are punished are not punished for the crimes they committed. There's a disconnection between who is in prison and what happens in the streets. So... Um, that nexus, which is so important for any society, was disrupted. And the book, in, in a way, is a history of that disruption, why it came to be thought that you know there was no connection between crime, truth, and justice, but also the history of how people try to re-establish that nexus, how people try to investigate, try to ask questions, try, try to punish. And that's why, as you mentioned, uh, some of the, the the ways in which this was solved, or some people tried to solve, was to accept that there could be punishment that was not um, uh, according to the law. Extrajudicial punishment was accepted as a reality of life in Mexico, uh, because the law doesn't allow us to find the culprits, so we will find other ways to, to find justice, no? And your uh, book focuses more in the 20s, uh, mm -hmm. 50s de decades. There mm -hmm. is a change on its mm -hmm. ideas, practices, spaces related to crime and justice. Can you, can you tell our audience, like just some of the elements that change in the in the twenties? Maybe we could get started with the jury system in penal courts mm -hmm. that you explain mm -hmm. in in your first mm -hmm. chapter and. Why is that such an important change in, mm -hmm. in this history? Well, I would, you know, probably start saying that, you know, for, for people who know Mexican history and people who don't know, that the revolution between 1910 and approximately 1920 was a, a big civil war that disrupted the lives of people um, and uh, changed the, the way in which the state operated. The laws, for the most part, remained the same, but... Uh, something very important change in Mexican society. No? Um, 
what we have done in the 1920s, that is after the revolution until 1929, that's my argument, is that justice became a matter of common concern, something that was openly discussed in the press, in the streets, uh, was part of politics. But the site where justice was uh, discussed with greatest intensity, the place where people looked at uh, uh, criminals and victims, were the jury trials that took place in Mexico City until 1929. Um, Other countries have jury trials. The U.S. still has a system. But in Mexico, um, it was established in the 19th century and lasted until 1929. And at least in Mexico City, became the scene for spectacles basically of justice people would go like they were going to the theater to 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 watch a, a jury trial because they knew that there were going to be interesting characters you know the victims the the widow the suspects the lawyers giving speeches the judges admonishing the witnesses um there will be big drama great speeches so it was a a, a a popular a spectacle, right? but also one that, in a way, um, taught people how justice worked. In other words, how justice was something that had to be argued, where people had to present their case, and then when the jurors would have to decide. No? So, as I said, that was eliminated in 1929 for several reasons uh, that I discuss in the book. Uh, probably the... There's two that I think are very important. One is that the government was concerned that the that the jury trials were becoming politicized in a way that they couldn't control. That people who were in opposition, either because they were Catholics, they were against uh, the, the government, could speak freely in this uh, stage and and reach out big audiences. You know, some of these jury trials were broadcast on the radio. Uh, people, uh, you know. Uh, follow them. So that was a reason to change the law and eliminate it. Another reason that I mentioned is, is the, the, the causality is not that clear, but I think it's there, is that the jury trials were places where women became very prominent, usually as uh, suspects, women who are, have uh, killed a man, and in some cases that were very famous, were acquitted by the jury. Uh, because the the jurors thought that they had committed the crime for a good reason, either to um, save their honor, to avenge you know their parents or their father. Uh, so there was a sense that uh, this popular justice through the juries was giving women uh, a prominence that made many people very nervous. Right? I mean, especially. I would say lawyers, right? Which is a profession that was at that time and for many years completely monopolized by men, uh, and where uh, the presence of women came to disrupt, in their view, the the due course of 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 of, uh, of the law. So what happened in twenty nine is that when that the space is closed for the discussion of of justice and and and, and punishment. Um, what follows is, on the one hand, the, the judicial process itself becomes something very opaque for most people. In other words, when someone is arrested and accused and undergoes a trial, nobody knows about it because it all happens in the offices of a judge. They, and it's all written down and there are no public audiences about this. So it was, in a way, removed from public interest. And at the same time, and in a way as a response to that, um, opacity of the justice system, the the crime news became very important in Mexico. There were uh, crime news newspapers before the, the end of the jury, but uh, starting in the late 20s and, and uh, certainly uh, into the following decades, as you mentioned, uh, the so-called Nota Roja became the most important form of journalism in Mexico. The, the Nota Roja were the crime news, there were magazines, but mostly newspapers that um, were focused mostly on crime, right? And they they covered the famous cri- uh, crimes. They took pictures of the crime scene, of the suspects, of the victims. Uh, they provided a very comprehensive and very serious, and I would say good quality, coverage of crime. 
and uh, it was the kind of newspaper that sold more than you know the mainstream newspapers. Many of them had uh, to receive subsidies from the government. No, uh, the Nota Roja newspapers they sold so many copies that they need to 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 uh, receive money from the government. So that gave them a lot of autonomy. So what we see, and it's one of my arguments, the Nota Roja was the most critical form of journalism at the time because the mainstream journalism was very close to the government and it would remain so for, for many decades in Mexico. So I, I argue that if we want to understand the debates about crime and the truth, we have to read the, the crime news. No? And that opened up discussions that... Uh, had to do not just with who killed, you know, the victim, uh, but also uh, the corruption of the police, the ineptitude of uh, the judges, uh, and um, especially the, the the character of the criminal it became a kind of a central theme for for readers uh, in the Nota Roja. So it's a, the argument is that something changed then, and then the middle decades of the 20th century is when. Uh, we have what I call kind of the golden age of the Nota Roja, you know? because everyone read it, everyone was discussed openly, crime was a venue of, of almost political debate. You know? And uh, after reading that particular chapter, mm -hmm. I, I got this uh, idea of the involvement of the public opinion in a quest of truth, like mm -hmm. truth, that uh, the journalist and the public opinion were like creating that, that dialogue. And you used uh, sometimes the word reality. What mm -hmm. is the relationship of this display of reality? Mm -hmm in regards to truth, how reality and truth were mm -hmm. part of this relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that reality is what people agree it is real, right? Reality is not a material, objective thing, but the way in which people interpret the life and the world around them. So uh, certain things are real because we agree that they are real. Um, so, in, in the case of Mexico City in the middle decades of the 20th century, for most of the readers of the Nota Roja, the reality of urban life was that there is danger, that there is uh, there are spaces that are better not to go into, some neighborhoods, some areas outside the city, uh, that the police was corrupt and inefficient, that the judges were not to be trusted, uh, that prisons were dangerous places. So if you were going to survive in Mexico City during those decades, you had to know the reality. You had to know how things worked. Right? You had to read the press. You had to talk to people. Um, it's what I call uh, criminal literacy, right? this basic knowledge about reality that allows you to survive in the city not to become a victim, right? Um, so the way in which, to me, this becomes clear is when we read fiction, then we see what readers thought was real, right? Uh, fiction, obviously, is a lie, right? Fiction is about things that are, by definition, didn't happen, right? But obviously, especially in the case of uh, the, the detective stories and murder novels that I analyzed in the last part of the book, The, these narratives have to be real, have to be plausible for the readers to enjoy them. The readers didn't want to read fantasy. They wanted to read something that sounded real, right? So reading the fiction helped me understand how people thought the city and life uh, worked, right? Um, not in direct reference to actual events of people, although sometimes there were actual, you know, direct references, uh, but in terms of the, the logic of life in the city, you know, in the modern city. And in the next part of your book, you talk about actors mm -hmm. and practices. Mm -hmm. And you explain several interesting characters in mm -hmm. order to understand the construction of justice, truth, impunity. And you start with detectives and policemen. And you tell us that they position themselves on the opposite side of the pursuit of the truth. Mm. And you use some interesting adjectives that I think it would be a 
nice for our listeners to hear more about them. Uh, anomalous detectives, obscure policemen, mm-hmm. and uh, that related to something that is la ley fuga. Mm-hmm. So if, if we can talk about yeah. these obscure men and ley fuga and justice. Mm-hmm. I think the anomalous detectives is from the Bolaño poem, right? Uh, mm. That I cited at the beginning. Yeah. I don't remember exactly the the, the, the poem, but uh, basically, you know, what I found is that in Mexico, the detective was not the figure that people saw in other countries. Uh, it was not the guide to the truth, uh, especially the police detective. Whereas in France, in the U.S., in England. The police detective or the private detective are the very smart and methodical men who find the truth eventually. In Mexico, nobody really thought that the the police, especially detectives, but even the private detectives, were that smart and were that methodical and, and were that scientific. They saw them, in most cases, in the in the f- fiction, you know, that was written during those years, Mexican detectives were kind of a joke. Nobody thought that a detective would solve a case. So what you see in in fiction is that most of the characters who solve a crime in in fiction are not detectives, are students, are uh, journalists, are uh, an archaeologist in in the stories by Bernal. So there's this idea that the truth will not come from the detective. The detective is not a figure related to to, uh, investigation. So that's one component no, of reality in Mexico. The other is that the police doesn't help in that pursuit of the truth. The police agents, the police officers, no, they're not there to help in the investigation. They usually put obstacles to the investigation. Um, in Mexico, since then, since those times, there were multiple police agencies. There was the the street cops. There was the secret uh, service. There were the the, the 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 federal detectives. There were the local detectives. So there were multiple agencies, sometimes competing to solve the same crime and not helping each other. Um, but what the police did do was to—that's um, kind of the obscure part, I guess—is that they tried to solve crimes by becoming close to the criminals by establishing relations with the world of crime, as they call it, el mundo de lampa, no? and establishing connections with um, thieves and drug traffickers and, and uh, pimps and people who um, lived in that world on the assumption that they would know who committed a crime. So when there was a crime that the police wanted to solve, usually they didn't put a lot of effort, but when there was a crime that was particularly troubling for them, where they had pressure from public opinion, from their bosses to solve, they would go with one of their criminal friends and, you know, try to obtain the information. Usually, uh, this was a partnership. You know, you give the information in in uh, exchange for police protection for your activities. That was very common since then. But in some cases, what the Mexican police did was to use torture. And not mm, it became a very established practice since then. No, I mean the idea that uh, if you wanted to solve a crime, all you needed is a confession, and the way to obtain a confession was to beat somebody, or you know, waterboard somebody, or hang somebody from their uh, thumbs until they said yes, yes, I did it. Right. Um, so the police, in a way, didn't want to find the truth. They wanted to find find a culprit, someone who could be blamed. Huh? Uh, so torture became part of the of the um, practices of the Mexican police. Uh, it wasn't new, but I would say that since then it was kind of intrinsic to the work of the police. No? And um, obviously, this is not the kind of torture that was practiced later in the in in, in more recent decades in with other purposes. No counterinsurgency, you know, uh, kind of state terror kind of torture, as we see in South America, a little bit in Mexico. This was torture just to get confessions, right? Um, but what happened with that, and, and going back to your question, is that in a way what happened is that the separation between the investigation and the punishment was blurred, was eliminated. 
So the investigation became a punishment itself. When you were investigated as a suspect, you were being punished because you were being tortured. And um, and uh, the lay fuga is, uh, I argue, uh, a result of that. The lay fuga was a practice that existed in Mexico and other countries since the 19th century, which basically consisted of the police shooting a suspect they had under custody, a prisoner, someone who had been arrested, shooting them and claiming that he or she had tried to flee, so they had to kill them. That's why it's called a lay fuga. It wasn't really a law, but it was a very common practice against bandits, especially in the 19th century. So in the 20th century, I found several cases of criminals who were shot by the police, even when they were under custody of the police, with the argument that they were trying to run away. But everyone knew that it wasn't what happened. That wasn't what happened. What happened was that they were being punished. That was a form of extrajudicial execution that was used against them. Uh, So uh, the lay fuga became uh, a practice that the police would use to punish people they couldn't uh, punish in a satisfactory way. Sometimes thinking prison is not punishment enough and we don't have the death penalty, so we'll take care of this here. Or sometimes we'll shoot these guys because they will leave prison, because they have connections, they have protection. So the the ineptitude or the limitations of police work in a way uh, uh, produce and and reinforce um, the use of violence, extrajudicial violence, as a in the form of torture, but also um, execution, extrajudicial execution. And that's another legacy, I think, that, that uh, those years gave us. Right? Yeah. And before moving, it's just it, that's one of the chapters that I found more intriguing when thinking about justice, because these were these extrajudicial killings, mm-hmm. as you already explained. But the sense of justice in there is for whom? For, for the executioner, for the victim of the crime? How is justice playing a role in there? For, for whom, again? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, in a general sense, I would say that uh, if you read the newspapers, that, that that's what you will find. Um, the idea is that the sentence that counted was the sentence of public opinion of this vague notion of public opinion. No? What people thought about a criminal mattered more than the actual sentence that uh, a judge could produce. Right? So um, in a very general sense, the argument was that these extrajudicial executions satisfied public opinion's notion of who was responsible for a crime and what was the do punishment for that crime. Um, obviously, in, in in specific cases, it works in different ways. I mean, public opinion, in a way, is a fiction. Right? I mean, it's not embodied in anyone or in any particular institution. Not even the newspapers can claim to be public opinion. But what uh, I would argue is that, again, each case is different, but the basic premise was that Justice was something was the product of a dialogue or a discussion. There was no single source of justice. It wasn't the judge. It wasn't the juries anymore. It wasn't the president. It was something where many actors came into play, and some have an idea, some had others, but uh, the, the, the idea was that there could be a consensus about this, uh, but that such consensus can only be achieve through a discussion, through an open debate about who had committed the crime and where, you know, what the punishment should be, etc., etc. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a good question because, you know, probably there is the main problem with, with all this story, you know, um, that we don't, we, it really betrays the, 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 the rule of law. No, the basic idea that there is one guilty person for for a for a crime. Uh, so moving to the yeah. the next uh, chapter, murderers as authors. Mm-hmm. How did they? How did murderers transform the meanings of murder? You used a, a concept. Uh, 
autor del crimen, mm -hmm. the author of the crime, and you give an explanation about that because it has a different intention in Spanish than in yeah, English yeah. and it, it, it this concept helps you to construct all this uh, narrative about them yeah. changing uh, the meanings of the, murder yeah yeah I mean what I see in the in these middle decades of the 20th century is that for the people who investigated crimes but also for the scientists who were trying to to explain crime in a more general sense and for the readers of the newspapers the people who went to the movies etc the basic idea was that the key actor in the drama of crime was the 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 criminal himself not the victim not the detective not the judge the most interesting character in each one of these stories was the the person usually uh, when it was a big case the the murderer because the murderer knew what happened. The murderer knew the truth because he was there. No one else was there. I, I discussed several cases of, of criminals who um, committed their crimes without any witnesses. So their confession is the only way people could get to the truth, right? Because they had been the witnesses of their own crime, the only witnesses. No? So that gave them a central role and... Uh, the newspapers gave them a central role, took pictures of them, interviewed them. Um, the police gave them a central role by relying on confession, that is, not using um, material evidence, not using t witnesses, just torturing them until they obtain a confession. The police depended on the criminals to produce the truth. Right, and uh, at the same time, what happened was a very interesting change in in the science about crime. Right, that, where um, we go from the nineteenth century notions of the criminal as a primitive being, you know, almost a subhuman species, no? that the criminologists, uh, uh, you know, believe was was you know the the main explanation from crime, Lombroso and other uh, criminology. To, in the mid-20th century, an idea that each criminal is different, that the criminal cannot be really uh, separated from the normal person because they look like us, they dress like us, they live in the same places. But that also the criminal was a fascinating mind that we had to explain and understand what was going on in that mind to understand the crime. The psychological uh, focus, which in, in some cases led to uh, the... I would say the, the beginning of the use of uh, psychoanalysis in Mexico. It was something that it was associated with uh, crime investigations before it became a form of therapy, you know, that people uh, used, you know, to help their own lives. No? So this made the criminal the central character in the pursuit of the truth. And their explanations of what happened, the most important narrative, right? Because they knew the truth, because they were interesting characters, because they, they witnessed what happened. Uh, the, the figure, the criminal became not only the author of the crime, but also the author of the story of the crime, the explanation of the crime. So what I found in several cases was people who would commit a crime and then explain it after they were caught, as if they had planned the two things, right? The actual com murder that they committed and the the narrative that they would provide once they were arrested and in many cases interviewed, not only by the police, but also by uh, journalists. No? So this this idea of the autor del crimen was a way, and I think the expression is, is very interesting, right? Because it, it blends those two roles, right? Autor as the, the culprit, the person who pulls the trigger, but also autor as the, 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 the person behind the narrative. Huh? So sometimes they wrote it, sometimes they just gave the narrative verbally to to people. But in, in a way, what we see since those years is this idea that there are criminals that are fascinating and that, you know, really to understand crime, we have to understand them. And again, today we can see very much that happening in Mexico no? with this, uh, you know, I would say obsession that there is about the narcos, right? I mean, trying to understand them, all these books, stories, telenovelas, you know. Uh, it's this, this centrality of the criminal, I think, dates from those uh, days. No? Mm -hmm. And there is another figure you, you talk about uh, that I celebrate that you put it 
in mm-hmm. there and received this uh, uh, historical analysis and are uh, los pistoleros. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, the way you, you describe uh, them or we can find them in, in the sources that you present to us is this figure that is so easily recognizable. Mm-hmm. The, the, the way he, he dressed, he performs his masculinity and uh, carrying a gun. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a figure surrounded by silence. Mm-hmm. Like people see them, but they wish they hadn't seen them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, what, is, uh, with, uh, what is the explanation for this odd combination of mm-hmm. being so visible, but at the same time invisible mm-hmm. and also silent? Yeah. yeah, no, the Pistoleros were, you know, they... I realized I had to write a chapter about them when I was in the middle of this. I mean, I didn't plan to focus on the pistoleros. I mean, there is some um, recent uh, historiography about pistoleros and politics, you know, in the post-revolutionary years. That is very interesting. Basically, shows that uh, most politicians after the revolution use violence, and usually they used it in a way that. Um, Required to have these, you know, bodyguards or thugs or, uh, you know, assassins at their service so they could, you know, get rid of an enemy or threaten people or uh, push people to vote in a certain way. You know? So violence was part of politics in a very integral way. What I see in the 40s and 50s in Mexico is the emergence of this figure of the pistolero in Mexico City because uh, many people saw that as part of rural life, right? But then in, uh, suddenly it's in the city. It's in a place where it's not supposed to happen, no? To, to see people going around with guns, no? That wasn't common in Mexico City. So the, the way I explain that silence, but also that visibility, is that these, many of these pistoleros were actually working for politicians, so they had um, protection. Basically, if they did something, they killed somebody, they engaged in some illegal business, they knew that they were not going to be punished because they were for this deputy or that minister or that general. Right? There was a, a, a space of impunity that was very broad and that they used. No? Usually, this was um, uh, the the emblem of this was the the IDs that they carried, the charolas, as they call them in Mexico. Right? I mean, one of these guys would be stopped in the street by the police, and he would show. You know, an identification from the Secret Service, from the Army, from the local police, so they would have to let him go. Right? Uh, it was kind of a get-out-of-jail car that they carry many of those sometimes. Huh? So it was difficult to really talk about them because uh, they embodied this impunity, this lack of justice that characterized life in Mexico. Huh? Um but at the t- same time, they were very visible because that, that was the role, basically, for a pistolero, to, for for them to to profit from from their job, you had to realize that they were a tough guy, right? So you will mess with them. So when they came into the nightclub, you would let them do what they want to do because you know that if you try to stop them, you get in trouble. Not just with them, right there. Uh, but also with their bosses, right? So there was there were these codes, right, that people understood, but were not uh, written down anywhere. It was an understanding of reality, right? Uh, you saw this guy dressed in this way, you didn't mess with him uh, because he, you know that he could do things to you and not be punished. Right? He was beyond the law, and uh, you know many people since then, as I said associated pistolerismo with politics as an integral part of that. But what happens afterwards is that there is, I would say, a a split, if you want, in which some of the illegal businesses that uh, these pistoleros were engaging in during the 1940s became so big that they were more important than politics in terms of their careers, so to speak, mainly drug trafficking, but also prostitution. I mean, we have several of these pistoleros who go from being bodyguards of politicians to being bodyguards of drug traffickers because there was more money there. And what we see in the you know the later part of the century is that uh, it was a big business where these connections with the police and the politicians were useful, but where the money was really in the illegal business. 
so pistolerismo has evolved into something different in New Mexico. But I think those figures in the 40s and 50s were really the, at the heart of this connection between crime and politics in Mexico. And in the characters you uh, analyze for this second part of the book, you often use the word infamy that is in the title of your book. So can you explain us how you tie, how are you understanding that concept for your analysis mm-hmm. and who, how you are tying it uh, to explain it, these infamous activities or even the nation, like how it has been attached mm-hmm. to yeah. the country? Yeah. Well, I mean, I came with the idea for the, of the, for the book, uh, thinking about this Jorge Luis Borges book, Historia Universal de la Infamia, no? Universal History of Infamy, um, which is a, a book that he wrote in which, you know, there are several short stories about infamous criminals, you know, people who were really, really despicable, you know, who committed crimes, who, who uh, were... Um, were terrible in different ways. Um, but what Borges says in the book is that infamy is what people do, is the moral value of their actions, but also is the way in which they are seen by others, right? Infamy is um, a surface in, of images, he says, you know, it's, it's, the, it's what is visible, is the reputation of a person, uh, but I would argue also of a country, you know. Uh, so I use infamy to refer to... Uh, this idea that um, uh, Mexico is a crime is a place of crime and impunity, um, that Mexicans accept violence and commit violence, uh, that impunity defines you know the relations between citizens and the government. Um, I don't think it's true, but it's the way in which the country is defined, right? That's the is the reputation of the country. And uh, what I try to do in the book is to explain how that reputation came to be. Why, during these decades, Mexico became this country identified with illegality and, 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 and impunity. No? And um, I didn't go very far into that, but if you look at what other, what foreigners were writing about Mexico in the mid-20th century, I, I just mentioned a few authors, uh, especially American authors who went to Mexico. They saw Mexico as this wonderful place where you could do whatever you want, basically. You know, in the case of Burroughs, you know, just consume drugs, right? And kill your wife and then get away. You know, I mean, this was a, um, a place that uh, they thought it was um, like a, a truthful, uh, violent uh, uh, um, place where you could follow your pleasures and, and, and not be accountable for those. So that, you know, obviously, I'm not saying that was the truth, but that was the way in which they saw the country, and that was the way in which many Mexicans also uh, defined the country. You know, the, the, the main reference there for me is uh, all this um, literature about Lo Mexicano and uh, Octavio Paz, no? the labyrinth of solitude, and this idea Mexicans are, you know, are... are uh, prone to fight and kill each other and they laugh at death and all those myths, right? Which are not, you know, Octavio Paz didn't invent them, but his, you know, formulation became the most famous, right? Um, Yeah, why these intellectuals would define their own country that way? I don't know, but it worked. Everyone, you know, bought it, right? So um, I try to understand that history, but not from the point of view of uh, their essays and literature, but from the point of the reputation of, of Mexico as a place of impunity. And now that you brought those intellectuals, it was very uh, interesting that instead of focusing on them, you, you mentioned them, but you rather focus in the last part of your book in a, the emergence of crime fiction mm-hmm. and how these uh, writers are actually creating these um, conversation with the readers, where the readers can find the city, and but they can also find a detectives that are going to be Mexican detectives in fiction that are going to have different characteristics from the detectives they might mm-hmm. read in the newspapers with this display of reality mm-hmm. in, in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would be the characteristics of these detectives? What a reader of that time would find in this uh, crime fiction at the in the in the fictional detectives and the, yeah 
Yeah. Well, uh, the the first thing that I found in all these um, short stories and some novels that were written between the 1940s, I would say, into the 60s, huh? was that uh, the detective was almost always, I found just one exception, not a policeman. It wasn't a member of the police, um, which is obviously different from, you know, other national traditions of, of crime uh, fiction. Most cases, the criminal uh, was a smart person, and the detective, the actual detective in, in the fiction no, who solved the crime, was someone who su- was smarter than the police, and who was someone who understood reality, who a modern man, who would uh, uh, be a man of action, but also a very astute inhabitant of the city. Someone who knew the spaces of the city, who knew the the habits and the practices of the criminals. No? Uh, this kind of uh, regular citizen who used his, because they were mostly men, no? his intelligence to solve crimes that the state couldn't solve. Right? So that was kind of the basic um, mechanism of, of this crime fiction. And the other thing that I found was that uh, a lot of people r- read it even though it wasn't a very prestigious literary genre. No? A lot of people read it, and a lot of people wrote, you know, crime fiction. I found a lot of, you know, uh, authors produced one or two stories, you know, published in magazines, and never became famous, uh, but they they liked to write, and uh, they, they wrote, you know, mainly short stories. No? And then I have a couple of uh, sections on... Famous writers like Rafael Bernal and Rodolfo Sigli, who wrote a few things in in the genre of crime fiction. They became famous for their theater or their other novels. Uh, but uh, I, I I looked at what they wrote in terms of crime fiction, and it was you know really good stuff. You know, Ensayo de un crimen, El complot mongol. In my opinion, they're major novels in in, in Mexican literature. Um, but they had not been, for many years, were ignored by, by the critics. They thought that, you know, literary, the crime fiction was something that was vulgar and not really literature. So, in other words, looking at these um, detectives of fiction and the readers and their authors, I tried, I understood, a, I would say, a field of Mexican literature that had been ignored or, or, or neglected, uh, but in my view, tell is is fun to read, you know, even though they're not very good sometimes. But it's also a very good source to understand uh, how life worked in those years. I don't know if I answered your question. Yes, yes, you <laughs> did. No. Just, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And just that now that you mentioned the, the authors you explore in the last part of the book, Rodolfo Sigli, Juan Bustillor, or Rafael Bernal, mm-hmm. and Maria Elvira Bermudez, yeah. her name caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Can you... Tell us about uh, Maria Elvira Bermudez's yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, she's fascinating because um, she was a woman who wrote in a genre that was dominated by men, right? Uh, crime fiction, not only in Mexico, everywhere, with uh, some great exceptions like Agatha Christie and, and, and other authors, uh, you know, uh, was mostly something that was produced by men. So in Mexico, Maria Elvira Bermudez. Um, was able to to have a you know to to publish you know short stories and novels that uh, were um, um, read by many people. It was, she wasn't like a bestseller author. She didn't sell, uh, uh, but nobody was a real bestseller author of crime stories. I mean, there was an audience, but it wasn't a huge market. No? But she wasn't as famous as Rosario Castellanos, right? Mm-hmm. For example. Um, but uh, Maria Elvira Bermudez was also interesting for me because she was, from all the authors that I analyzed, the one who was more conscious about the rules of the genre, of how of the, of the codes and the rules that you had to follow in order to write proper crime fiction, right? Uh, because there are rules, and that's why a lot of people write crime fiction, because there are basic rules. If you follow those rules, you can write a story. You know, you have to have a crime, you have to have a, you know, a detective that begins to solve the puzzle, and, you know, uh, it, it has to be um, done in a way that the author can 
predict. Hmm? So if you solve the puzzle through fantasy or through information that the reader doesn't know, you're not doing your job. You have to give the reader enough to solve the crime, uh, him or herself, no? Uh, and then find like a logical resolution to the story, no? Um, so if you follow those rules, I mean, uh, there are many other rules, no? Uh, you, you're writing proper crime fiction. So Maria Elena Bermudez, in a way, became the enforcer of those rules. I mean, she would publish anthologies where she said, well, this guy writes like a real, and this one is, doesn't belong in the anthology, no? uh, because they follow the rules. No? So it was interesting. I mean, she always was concerned about recognition, because obviously as a woman, she didn't have a lot of recognition as an author. No? Uh, and her way to achieve that was to be a strict follower of the rules of the, of the genre. No? Uh, the orthodoxy of crime fiction. Rather than to innovate or change perspectives, she said, you know, this is how we should do it. So her uh, stories are very interesting um, because they, they're they very well put together. Uh, but at, at the same time, they're kind of, how can I say, uh, predictable, if you want. Huh? Uh, She's not a great innovator of the genre, as Bernal was. You know? mm-hmm. uh, um, but obviously, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, unfair to judge, you know, one author this way, especially one author that, like herself, who, who, you know, was always considered a, an anomaly, a, a strange thing, you know, a woman who writes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, she never uh, lived off her work. I mean, she was... Uh, she worked in the Supreme Court. I mean, not, not as a judge, but as an employee in, in the government. No? So she had, you know, a day job. You know, so, but she's very interesting, and also because she, um, um, when we look at female authors, we tend to see, well, you know, let's read them to find what women say, to find the voice of women. In the case of Maria Elvira Bermudez, I don't find that. I mean, she's a writer who wants to write like men, right? <laughs> she doesn't care about being a woman or a man. She wants to write proper, except from one novel um, where she basically has uh, uh, mo- all characters are women, right? Uh, and she has several stories where uh, there's a woman who solves the crimes, right? Um, but it's not an attempt to really uh, undermine the rules of the game. It's simply to put women in places of men. Well, of course, I was a completely selfish asking about her. Well, I think interviewing is kind of selfish. You ask what you want to know. Yeah, of course. But about the other uh, three authors, is there anyone you would like to talk about, to mm-hmm. tell our listeners about uh, Usigli, Bustillo, or Bernal? Well, they're all very different and, and, and very good. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Rodolfo Usigli was a playwright, but he wrote Ensayo de un Crimen in '44, and he never wrote again, you know, in, in, the, in the genre. There's a story that he wrote some, something else, but Octavio Paz told him not to publish it, because nobody writes crime fiction anymore. It wasn't a good thing to do for your career. I don't know if that's true, but it could be. You know? All the prestigious writers in Mexico didn't write. You know, They, they didn't do crime fiction. Um, Rafael Bernal is a very interesting guy because he lived outside Mexico for many years. <clears throat> he wrote several detective stories that were very interesting at the beginning of his career. And then his great novel, El Complot Mongol, is from 69. Uh, you know, he died shortly afterwards. But he was always a marginal writer. He never had an important place in Mexican literature uh, before and after. He Most of his life lived as a diplomat elsewhere. No? Uh, Bustillo Oro was a movie director, and he did many movies, you know, some of them very famous, great movies, you know, with Cantinflas. He worked with, with other uh, important artists in the golden age of Mexican cinema. But <clears throat> during a period uh, in the 50s, he couldn't produce any movies because of the way the business was going in Mexico. So he wrote several stories that are very interesting because in those stories you see the idea that the criminal is an artist mm-hmm. and that murder is a way to achieve an aesthetic, you know, um, uh, work of art. No? Um, there's revenge, but there's also 
beauty in, in murder, no? in, the, in these stories of Bustillo Oro. And I, you know, the way I saw it, he was writing these things just to, to, you know, to get back at the people who had, you know, um, uh, been mean with, to him, you know, in, in the business. No? But uh, that's, that's a psychological interpretation. I have no basis to say that. But it, they're very, very, um, very good stories, short stories. And, she, and he did a few movies also that were very good. Uh, three or four movies that were uh, uh, noir movies. No? And then the, the author that I really find fascinating is um, Leo Dolmo, who wrote hundreds of short stories in La Prensa, this uh, daily Nota Roja newspaper. Uh, Leo, de Ol Leo Dolmo stories, uh, they were called uh, Aventuras de Chucho Cárdenas, no? the adventures mm. of Chucho Cárdenas, who was a detective, was a journalist detective. They appear weekly in the 40s in La Prensa. Um, and uh, he must have had a lot of readers because they, they went on for years. Every Sunday, there was a story of Chucho Cárdenas. Uh, but we don't know who he was. We don't know who Leo Dolmo was. Um, you know, I didn't find any evidence of about him anywhere as a real person. Just the, the author of these Chucho Cárdenas stories and a couple of other books. Um, but uh, it's kind of a mystery. People think that uh, it could have been multiple authors writing in, you know, Dividing up the work, and you know, you do one week, I'll do another week. That's what people did with Ellery Queen, you know, was a famous, you know, um, series of stories in, in the US, right? Uh, there were multiple people writing Ellery Queen stories. You no, know? some people have suggested that, some people have suggested some a Spanish author that did other things but didn't want to know as a crime fiction author because that wasn't prestigious, so we never knew who he was. Um, I suspect that it's a composite of that. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, several people writing for La Prensa. Uh, some of the stories have different styles, but they're consistent. I mean, they're not all over the place. And probably one of those persons being uh, from Spain, uh, because sometimes, you know, the way in which verbs are conjugated sounds very Spanish, no? or sometimes the themes of some stories is, uh, uh, involves Spain. No? But I wouldn't say that the same person wrote all these uh, stories. So for me, it would be, I couldn't solve the mystery in my book, right? I asked around, I tried different, you know, uh, you know, hypotheses, but I never found any reference to him. I didn't find a reference to him in the, um, the archives of the Secretaria de Relaciones Exteriores, you know, as a foreigner. I didn't find anything in the archives about him. And um, I hope that someday somebody will, you know, solve it, you know. Uh, but he was a fascinating, not a great writer or writers, you know? but the stories were really entertaining and they really tell you a lot about life in Mexico uh, in the 40s. You know? So I think that I, I just kind of skimmed, you know, the surface of what we could do with those uh, stories. But I'm hoping that somebody will devote, you know, more time to, to Leo Dolmo. Yeah. Oh, at, uh, when opening your book, we can read, like any other history book, this one tries to understand the present. Mm -hmm. And thinking about uh, the current uh, situation in Mexico, what are the, I, I mean, I don't want to say lessons, but the, what are the understandings we can find Mm. In trying to explain mm. what is happening in Mexico, I know it might be a, a very comprehensive question, but what are the uh, elements we can find in, in your book, or that you find as an author, in order to try to understand mm -hmm. the reality in regards to violence, truth, and justice in Mexico? Today. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to know uh, to be very cautious about making those arguments. I'm not saying, you know, what happened in the 50s is a direct cause of what happens today, right? I mean, first of all, because today, the situation today uh, is very much the product of the uh, enormous growth of the drug trafficking business, right? So we couldn't understand the present if we don't understand all the money and violence that is associated with uh, with um, drug trafficking, no? Um but there are things that I found that in the 50s or in the middle of the 20th century, 
that, in my view, are present today. And we have to try to understand why they remain here. I mean, I'm just presenting them as I see them in this in these decades. I let the reader or someone else to try to make the exact connection. But this idea of impunity, of extrajudicial violence, of the normalization of, of, of torture... Um, those were certainly there, you know, in the middle decades of the 20th century and are still here, right? Um, but there are, uh, you know, a couple of things that I think are important. One is, uh, as I said, this kind of acceptance of impunity, right? I mean, Mexico's only a few crimes really are investigated. Uh, many murders are never uh, investigated seriously. Um, and that's okay. Uh, it's for me it's remarkable that this is not a political issue that people don't uh, turn it into a central demand of civil society we want justice in, not justice in the sense of justice in, in some famous crimes, justice every day for every crime no? because it's not there right? I mean, and, and, and uh, it's, it's something that everyone knows is not there Yet, it's not a political issue. No? Corruption is an issue, you know, inflation is an issue, violence is becoming an issue, but impunity, the lack of truth and the lack of justice is not a political uh, problem. No? We can see that in the campaigns today for the presidency. But the other part, uh, the other continuity I think is important is that uh, today people still think that the, the way to reach the truth is through uh, an open debate. It's not... The truth is not in the hands of one actor, of one person, the state, the detective, the scientist. Something that will involve multiple voices, multiple uh, actors to, to come to be. Right? The truth is not something that someone owns and then will show to the rest. It's something that will come out of the, of the confrontation of multiple point of, points of view and, and opinion. So I think that that's a, that's, a, that's a good legacy of these years. In other words, the idea that there is no single source of power in terms of, of, of punishment and the truth. Uh, obviously, that, is, that doesn't translate very easily into politics, into, into laws, right? It's chaotic, it's, uh, it's messy, no? but it's there. And I think people are in Mexico are increasingly interested in the, in the importance of the truth. Huh? Uh, the truth, not just, again, about the famous crisis, but the... the the truth about the 43 students in Iguala, the truth about the women in Juarez, uh, Juarez, the truth about uh, um, many crimes that happen in the streets, right? Um, we see mothers, you know, trying to find out what happened to their children. There's a lot of people disappeared in Mexico. Uh, so that is generating another demand for the truth, right? Where are they? You know, what happened to them? What are they? Their bodies, if if they are dead, right? So that is something that you know. Um, it's kind of parallel tracks, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you have the normalization and the acceptance of impunity. On the other, you have these uh, groups that I think are few, but more and more um, that demand the truth and are trying to um, make it a, a political issue. No? So hopefully, you know, in in, in not in the distant future there will be a systemic, you know, social effort to re-establish the truth, to, to, to find out what happened, to what happened to all the dead, who killed them, where are they disappeared, something that will try to um, account for the past, you know, in a way that is, uh, um, you know, socially legitimate. And I would like to end our conversation uh, talking about projects you have been working on or projects that you have in mind or that you're working on now. I'm particularly thinking about some statistics about crime in Mexico that uh, is a project that you prepared mm -hmm. and it's covering these statistics from 1901 to uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has a... a gotten a lot of attention in, in mm -hmm. Mexico. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us uh, about that project and about any other project you might be working yeah. on? Well, that's, that's something that uh, um, those statistics of crime that I put in the, uh, on a website so people could use them, you know, they're available to everyone. I, uh, you know, we have an interpretation of them, but the idea is that anyone can use them and use them for their own purposes. No, it's just the data is there for whoever wants to okay. use it. Um, 
that material came from the process of writing this book or researching this book. I thought, you know, we need to know these numbers. I looked at the at the sources. I compiled, well, I had people help me, you know, get all the numbers for the main crimes for each year, the suspects, the sentenced, etc. Long series. And just uh, try to use them to understand uh, the cycles and the causes of, of crime in Mexico. But then I realized that I wasn't sure about, I wasn't happy with any explanation uh, that would correlate, you know, crime trends with other factors. You know, you can correlate crime data with anything, with, you know, inflation, you know, um, you know, uh, the value of the peso, uh, Poverty. There are many things that you can do with a, you know, with a computer, and they will show some results. But I was, I'm not convinced that that's the way to explain these things. You know, <laughs> maybe some people will, and that's fine. You know, I just make it available to them. No? But I think that these statistics are useful because they tell a, a, a story of how crime basically decreased during most of the 20th century. All these years that I'm writing about the book were years in which crime rates were going down. There was less crime, less murder. Gradually, uh, people were concerned about crime and, they, you know, they were horrified and, and they thought that there was too much crime. But if you look at the actual numbers, it was going down. And it's it's something that was happening in other countries at the same time. You know, as, as you have a more urban society, um, as... as as you have more education, you will have lower crime rates. That happens. Then something changed in the 80s and then clearly in the 90s of the 20th century where crime rates began to go up. First theft um, and then, you know, homicide. A homicide is still not as high as it was early in the 20th century. The rates, you know, the, the relation between homicide and population. So... I think that we have to have that perspective. Mexico is not necessarily a country that is more violent uh, in terms of the frequency of crime. Crime is very important. People, you know, make it a, a theme of, of their discussions and their conversations, but it's not that it happens. Mexico is not like Honduras. or I mean, the, the rates are different. Uh, Venezuela has higher rates. Mexico has high rates, especially in certain pl- parts of Mexico, no? very high rates. Uh, but it's not the catastrophic, you know, violence that people tend to think. No? So we have to understand that historically. We have to understand uh, that um, not everything is, is becoming worse, you know. Um, so that's something, that's what I draw from those numbers. An interesting trend toward more, you know, a more peaceful society. Paradoxically, is is there a, any other project you are working on? Yeah, I'm working on other things. I mean, I'm trying to move on from crime. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm spending enough time on these things. You know, so there are several things that I want to do. You know, about you know maybe some writers, uh, some movies that I think is interesting to just to look at again from the point of view of the history of crime. Right, rereading these novels or um, watching these movies again, thinking about crime. So that's something that will probably occupy me. But you know, I'm probably going to go back to the 19th century, which is you know the other part of my work is about that. No? And I I feel that I still have a few things that I could do on the on the 19th century, you know, history of politics and culture in the 19th century. So I'm. I'm I'm just beginning to go in that direction and I don't have anything to show for it yet. You know? mm-hmm. Okay, I just mm-hmm. want to thank you for being mm-hmm. on the show today. I really enjoyed it and I think our listeners are no, going to enjoy so. it as well. Thank you very much for having me.